Hello, and welcome back to Days Gone By, a podcast that is part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jameson Stewart, and in today's episode of Days Gone By, we have a sermon for you by Don Walker, and the title of his sermon is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? As you've probably heard me say before in a few other episodes we've had with Don Walker, he's a a teacher of mine when I was in school, uh, a great friend, he was a great mentor, uh, someone who has since gone on to be with the Lord, and I know he is enjoying that very much. We certainly miss him, but we're happy for him and grateful that we can still hear him in lessons like this. So I hope that you enjoy this episode of Days Gone By with Don Walker. This morning, our text is taken from the fifth chapter of the book of Exodus. The background of this chapter, we are aware as we close the book of Genesis, we remember that the seed of Abraham stands in favor with the Egyptians. Joseph is in the second position of the nation. He has blessed the nation when he was able to decipher the dream. And because of that, he was able to lay forth plans that would prepare them for what was coming. And so they were held in esteem. However, when we close the book of Genesis and we open the book of Exodus, we find them now enslaved in Egypt. And as we follow the text from Exodus chapter 1, we see that there was a Pharaoh who arose who knew not Joseph. Verse 8 of chapter 1. And as we continue on, we remember that Jehovah set Moses aside, called upon him for a great task. You're going to lead my people. And I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to request of him, let him know that I am calling upon him to let my people go into the wilderness to worship me. Well, as they go before Pharaoh... And they let the words of the Lord known unto Pharaoh. His response was less than what it should have been. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And then he goes on and says, I know not the Lord. What a question. Who is the Lord? If you're reading from the King James Version, you'll note that Lord is there, and it's in all capital letters. If you'll look in the American Standard Version, you'll note that Jehovah is used there. The Hebrew word is Yahweh, or Yahweh. It is the name of Jehovah. It is the name of God. It is a name that is held and was held as very... uh, Holy, and the Jews were very reverent concerning this name of God. In fact, they would not even say this name. When they were writing this as they were going forth and copying the word of Jehovah, before they would write this name, they would go through a ritual of cleansing, and then they would come and write that name. It was a name that was elevated in their minds. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do because we'll be looking at some passages this morning. If you'll open with me to the book of Exodus chapter 6, we see Jehovah's response to Pharaoh and his unwillingness to follow 
the precept to follow the commandment of God. And as we go to chapter 6 and verse 1, he says there that the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. In verse 3, he goes on and says, I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. Well, we'll know if we were to look carefully that the term was used earlier, but God is going to reveal himself in a way to Pharaoh in which he has not before, and he's going to exalt his power against Pharaoh. He's going to set forth just exactly who it is that Yahweh is. He's going to let him know. He's going to introduce himself. It's a term that we find that has in its meaning the one who is, that is, the absolute unchangeable one, Yahweh. He is the self-existing eternal one. Now understand this point. When we consider the question, who is the Lord? We need to recognize that we are dealing with one that we are ill-equipped to understand completely and totally. We are dealing with an infinite being that the only boundaries that he has are set by his holiness. The things that he cannot do are determined by his purity. You and I, we are finite. We have many boundaries that we have. We have boundaries in our existence in this world physically. We have boundaries in our knowledge, the things that we can comprehend and understand. And as one commentator put it, were we able to completely and totally comprehend who is the Lord, then we would be assured that he was not the Lord at all. And so as we deal with this question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, we need to understand that there are going to be, as we go through this lesson and bring it to a conclusion, still many questions that go unanswered, many questions that we do not have the ability to answer. In fact, as a gospel preacher, I feel inadequate in many ways to deal with this very topic. But as we do so, we're going to strive to let Jehovah reveal himself to us, and we're going to turn our attention to Scripture to learn who the Lord is. He said he would make himself known as Jehovah, something that he had not done in the past. And then we will remember that through a process of plagues, from the river being turned to blood and the fish dying therein, all the way to the last plague, the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn, from the highest, the Pharaoh, to the lowest, the handmaidens, and even of the beasts. And we need to understand and recognize that every one of these ten plagues was an indictment against a god of Egypt. They were a polytheistic people. They were a people who worshiped many gods. And so when he is going to reveal himself unto Pharaoh, he is going to do so as he exalts his power over the gods of Egypt. And we realize, of course, 
that it had a result in the mind of Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I ought to obey his voice? The question that Pharaoh asked rings through the years and ought to be a question that you and I ask often. Ought to be a question that we contemplate, that we meditate upon frequently. And if we do such, as we study God's Word and as we grow in our knowledge of God, then our reverence is going to grow. We cannot, and I underline this term, we cannot properly understand who the Lord is without being brought to our knees in subjection to him. And if a man will not humble himself before God, a man who is rebellious to the ways of the Lord as they are revealed in his word, they do not know Jehovah. A man whose arrogance exalts himself, who's always speaking of me and I, does not know the Lord of heaven does not know Yahweh. For the more our understanding grows concerning Jehovah, the better equipped we are to see just how small and how insignificant and how unworthy we are to even come before him. And were it not for the grace of God, and were it not for the holiness of Christ, and were it not for the price that he paid... You and I would have no hope to stand before our God. We would have no hope to petition him as we have this morning, hopefully as we do day by day. And the only reason that we are able to approach unto God is by the grace of our Lord. And when we understand that point, then we're going to realize how we ought to respond to him. We ought to respond in awe and reverence. We ought to stand in awe and sin not, Psalm 4 and verse 4. We ought to proclaim as the psalmist did in Psalm 111 and verse 9, Holy and reverend is thy name. And we certainly will not take upon us a title that is reserved only for Jehovah, that being reverend as many of those in the denominational realm do. We will recognize and understand as Jesus taught us to pray that it's more than just language, it's more than just words, but when we pray, we pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy name be exalted. Let thy name be set aside. Let us recognize and understand there is none other like our God. Who is the Lord that we ought to obey his voice? Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29. And in 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, what we find there is David. And he is going to, as we read in this context, he is going to bless the Lord. Now, when we speak of that term toward Jehovah, us blessing the Lord, it's much like we read in the epistles uh, Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Or in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father who has given us a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, the Greek word is eulogatos. It means eulogy, to speak well of, to exalt the name of. That's what David is doing. 
Our God blesses us with every good and perfect gift, James 1 and verse 17. But when we bless our Lord, we exalt his name. We praise him. And so we begin in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29, and listen to what David says. It says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Notice what he has proclaimed concerning Yahweh. He has exalted his name. He recognizes where he stands far above any period. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to, do, to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. What a great tribute David has proclaimed concerning Jehovah. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel bows down and prays unto Jehovah, he begins that prayer, Thou art a great and a dreadful God. Dreadful in the context of mighty, exalted, to be feared. He then continues and said, We have sinned. Of thee comes understanding, we stand in confusion. And so as a man's knowledge of God, and I don't mean just an intellectual knowledge, but I mean an intimate knowledge, a fellowship knowledge with God. As our knowledge with God grows, a comprehension and understanding of who we are also grows within us. And we recognize the gap that is there in our existence. And we are even more grateful then for the one who has bridged that gap between us and our God. Who has prepared us and put us in a position to be able to stand in the presence of our God as God intended in the first place when he created man. Just look at Genesis 1 and 2. That's what God intended for man altogether. And as you look at the close of God's word and the promises that he makes, that's exactly what he intends for us in eternity, to be able to stand in his presence, to be able to be to the praise of the glory of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1, so that he might bless us willingly. It brings great pleasure for him to do so. And yet when men stand and they shake their fist at God, as we read in Psalm 2, where the leaders of the land said, we are going to break the bonds of Jehovah. We're going to free ourselves from him. It says he will laugh them to derision. And so it is our God, one to whom we approach carefully, one to whom we approach with great reverence and awe. One that we should never take lightly. One that we should never ignore. One that we should never become, if you'll please pardon the expression, too familiar. He is our Father 
And I remember at times where youth ministers and different ones, movements in the church, would call, call him Daddy No. He's our Father in heaven to be exalted and to be praised as we strive to glorify his name. So let us consider who is the Lord that I should obey his name, that I should obey his voice rather. As we begin, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 139. For as we do, we learn that the Lord is the omniscient one, that is the one who knows all. He is the omnipresent one. He is the one who is everywhere. And though I may be able to hide what I do from others, children may be able to hide what they do from their parents. Members of a congregation might be able to hide what they do from the elders. But be assured, we cannot hide from God. There is nowhere we can go. There is nothing we can do that God is not aware of and he is not uh, uh, knowing that we are doing it. We begin in Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. And be aware that Yahweh knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows your weakness. He knows your strength. You and I, we can deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive God. He goes on and he says, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, you know about it. Whatever I am thinking before it leaves my mouth, you are aware of those thoughts. Thou compass my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. The Lord knows what I will say in the remainder of this sermon. The Lord knows what you will think about what I say in this sermon. The Lord knows everything. He continues on, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Verse 5, thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee, flee from thy presence? No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, if we are glorifying God in our action or if we are transgressing his will and transgression, God knows. He is there. He sees it. And we are so small and so petty at times that we are more concerned about what man finds out about us and we ignore the fact that God knows all about us. Think about that for a moment. The very one that we ought to be the most concerned about concerning our actions what he thinks, how he feels, what will be his response to what I do is the one that we too often push to the back of our minds as small and insignificant. We must keep in the forefront of our mind that we stand naked before the one with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 and verse 13. And that just as Jesus knew what was in the hearts of man, John chapter 1, so too God knows everything that is in our hearts, in our minds, 
and he knows every action even before it unfolds. We ought to guard ourselves. We ought to develop a determination that will present a life that reflects an understanding of this fact. For example, in Galatians 5 and verse 17, the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. That's a determination passage. It's not an impossibility. You could do them. Many do. But you have the determination is what he's stating there. In 1 John 3 and verse 9, we are his seed. We cannot sin. Doesn't mean that we can't sin, that it's impossible. It means that we have such a reverence for our God and we have such a determination in our heart that we're not going to contradict his will, transgress his will, that we're going to please him, that we just couldn't even think about doing it. Would not even think about doing it. For we know what God thinks about it. <coughs> we know who our God is. Our God is all-knowing and everywhere. Our God is omnipotent. That is, our God is all-powerful. Open with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. For we have set before the Apostle Paul the task of writing concerning the power of God. And what a task that is. And as we consider Paul's writing, we begin with verse 18. And he is praying on behalf of the Ephesians. This is what I'm praying for you. That your eyes, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know, number one, what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints and then listen to verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Four different Greek words employed in that passage. As Paul begins to write concerning the power of Jehovah, the strength of God, he will first exhaust the language. He will use these terms and set them forth, but you and I know. That if we are dealing with an all-powerful God, almighty God, an omnipotent God, that words are not enough. And so as he continues on, notice what he does. <coughs> he speaks of action, which he wrought. He showed this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He was proven to be the Son of God by the power of his resurrection. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It was God raising him up from the dead. It was a new tomb. There weren't prophet bones in that tomb. Not at all. For we remember in the old covenant, there was a battle going on. One had died, been killed in the battle. He was put in the grave, the tomb of a prophet. When he touched the bones of the prophet, he came back to life. Not the case with Christ. It was Jehovah exercising his power, showing him to be the son of God because he had prophesied that that's what would happen. He'd be raised from the dead. But he doesn't stop there. For he goes on and says, And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Not only did he raise him from the grave, but he caused him to ascend to the highest of heavens to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. But he doesn't stop there. Notice as he continues on. He placed him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. 
He brought everything into subjection to his son, Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jehovah. Our brother Davenport this morning in Bible class last week also spoke of Job and the encounters that Job had with Satan. I don't know that Job ever knew that it was Satan behind all of this. We don't know that. We don't have that revealed. You and I know it. But one thing that we notice is that Satan was brutal and he pushed to the very point, but he did not step beyond the commandment of God. Don't touch him personally first, and then don't take his life second. You see, God brings even Satan into subjection, an all-powerful God. But he doesn't stop there. He's put all things under his feet, verse 22, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. He placed him as the authority over all. One exception, 1 Corinthians 15, that's the Father, the one who put all things under Christ. But he doesn't even stop there. In verse 1 of chapter 2, And you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. This power that he exercised over Christ physically to raise him from the dead, he will exercise over us spiritually when we submit unto his will. And so it is we see that there is nothing that our God cannot do. I wonder sometimes if we do not limit our God. I wonder it, sometimes that as we consider God's plan and we remember in the beginning of the church that our God worked miraculously and that he accomplished things in a miraculous way. And we understand that Scripture teaches that with the coming of full revelation, that which is in part the miraculous would be set aside. And that was done at the close of the first century. And now our God no longer works miraculously, but he works providentially on our behalf. And I wonder sometimes if we don't think that that some way limits what God can accomplish in this world. But be assured that our God can accomplish whatever he desires to accomplish without a miracle. And that those things, those events that we see in the Old Testament, those things that we see in the first century church, those things that were done in a miraculous way, be assured God could accomplish those things also through a providential means if he so desired. And so it is when we bow unto our God and we let even our requests be made known unto him, Philippians 4 and verse 6, we can do so with confidence of knowing that if it is his will and if it is the best for us, that he has the ability to bring about what it is that we request. And whatever we ask according to his will, he'll provide it. That's not an empty promise. That's not a shallow promise. That's not a promise made by someone who no longer has the ability to affect all things. Our God still is omnipotent and all-powerful, and he can accomplish those things. Our God is a holy God. We go through the pages of the Old Testament, and as we do, one of the main topics that are that's carried throughout is the holiness of jehovah we see it in the forefront in the book of leviticus where we see an unholy people 
a people who, though they have been brought out of Egypt, still have a whole lot of Egypt in them. A people who find themselves unable to draw near unto their God. And so God will establish a sacrificial system for the Jews, a means by which they can be cleansed from their sin so that they can stand holy before their God because their God is holy. And that's the thrust of the book of Ephesians, or Leviticus rather. And so we see that point brought out in the Old Covenant going all the way through. Why did God allow Israel, his people, to go into Assyrian captivity? Is because of his holiness. Why did he allow the southern kingdom, Judah, to go into Babylonian captivity? Because of his holiness. Why did he preserve Judah, not Israel? Wasn't because they were better than Israel. Wasn't because their conduct was different than Israel's. Many times their sin surpassed those of the northern kingdom. But the reason he did it was for his holiness. Because he had made a covenant with Abraham. He had made a covenant with David. And he was going to bring that covenant about for all the peoples of this world. For all the nations of this world. And so we hear Peter ringing and echoing as we go through 1 Peter chapter 1. The sentiment of Leviticus chapter 11, 44 and 45. When he says, as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. That's what God expects of you. And of me. And if you'll look closely, look closely at 1 Peter 1 13 and 14, you will see God revealing to us exactly how we can be holy as He is holy. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end. Be as an obedient child. Those things all unfolding in those two verses. Don't fashion yourself after this world, but be holy as God is holy. And so it is his purity, his beauty shines forth. We turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who had come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world, John 1 and verse 29. And that is set upon his holiness, his purity, the fact that he was unspotted. Not one transgression. I do always those things that please my Father, John 8 and verse 29. Not one time, not one time, did he have an evil thought? Not one time did he mutter an evil word under his breath. For had he done such, you and I would be without a Savior. We would be without a sacrifice. And so the holiness of our God shines forth. That leads us to our last point that we want to close with this morning. Our God is a gracious God. We're in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Let's continue in chapter 2. After he speaks of the sin that man has, and he concludes that thought in verse 3 with, We were by nature the children of wrath. Through habitual practice, we have become skilled at sin. That's what he says. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. The grace of our God, the mercy of our God, the kindness of our God 
are qualities that you and I ought to exalt our God because of these qualities. That we ought to sing praises unto our God with thankful hearts. For it is through these characteristics of Jehovah. It is through these beneficial traits that he has expressed toward man. That you and I can rise up from the quagmire of sin and stand in the very presence of our holy God. I go to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and it speaks there of the salvation that comes from the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For therein, in that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. He has made known His will to us. That's God's grace. Letting us know what stands before us. You transgress my will, you will be cast off in eternity. He did the same thing with the Israelites. He let them know, if you live this way, I will not be your God. I will not stand with you. I will not fight for you. But if you live this way, I will be your God. I will fight for you, and you will be victorious. He's done the same for you and me. That's the grace of God. I remember the words of Jonah as he's sitting up, looking over Nineveh, pouting like a little child. Is this not my word? Did I not say that you were a gracious and a merciful God, willing to forgive? And I knew that if I went and preached, you'd forgive them. I'd rather consider the words of Micah in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, where he will speak of those exact same qualities and characteristics. He will exalt God because of it. Not say that these were weaknesses that God had shown toward the Ninevites. But he'll exalt God because of it. And then he says, and he will take their sins and he will cast them into the depths of the sea. You see, when we come to an understanding of who the Lord is, we come to an understanding of really who it is we are. And when we come to an understanding of who we are, we recognize our need. We understand how far short we fall. And we know just how dependent we are upon a God who is gracious and merciful and kind toward us. A God who is patient and long-suffering with us. In Psalm 86 and verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready, ready to forgive. He goes on and says, In plenteous and mercy unto all them that call upon thee. In Romans 1.17 it says, For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who hold truth and unrighteousness. In other words, you and I, you and I have to make a decision concerning Jehovah. I do myself a disservice if I know not the Lord because I have a responsibility and my eternity is going to be determined by how I respond to my creator, the great sovereign Yahweh of heaven. Pharaoh shook his hand in the face of God and Pharaoh was wiped out. The kings of the earth shook their hands and said, we'll break their bands and we'll turn from him. But he laughed them to derision. Be sure, be aware 
that if you respond in like fashion, then the result is going to be the same. He will laugh you to derision. And he will wipe you out. But if you exalt his name as we are called to do, you do that by obeying his will, calling on the name of the Lord. Those outside the body of Christ, Scripture's clear. It's not difficult to understand. It shouldn't be difficult to obey. Our hope, our salvation, our ability to stand in the presence of God centers upon one individual, Jesus Christ. I must believe that he is the Son of God. Without that faith, I cannot please God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, John 8 and verse 24. I've got to change my mind. I can no longer direct my own steps. The way of man is not in himself, Jeremiah 10, 23. We must turn our attention to follow the path of Christ. That's repentance, changing our minds to do his will rather than ours. I must be willing to confess the name of Jesus, Romans 10, 10. I must be willing to let the Lord know, let my brethren know, let the world know that Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my life. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. And then, I must be baptized for the remission of sins. That's how you call on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. When we are baptized, God will labor. He will work. He will operate. Colossians 2 and verse 12. He'll take the blood of Christ and wash our sins away. We'll be holy as God is holy. And we'll stand in his presence. Rising up to walk in newness of life. Our sins gone. And us having fellowship with God. As children of God, we transgress. If we say no, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But our God is plenteous in mercy. He desires to forgive. He longs to forgive. He has great pleasure in forgiving. And if we as his children will confess our faults, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And we can stand with him again. Who is the Lord that I ought to obey his voice? He is the one that is exalted above all. The one that we are dependent upon. And the one to whom we must come if we want to reap the reward. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.